When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. We all need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. April 19th, 1995, just past nine in the morning, a meeting of the Water Resources Board had just begun inside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Basically, there are four elements that I have to receive information regarding. A massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The bomb weighed nearly 7,000 pounds, nearly three quarters of the weight of the nuclear device dropped on Hiroshima. Most people were already inside at work here when the blast ripped the nine-story federal office building apart, shattering floors and the offices inside. Most devastating of all, the daycare center on the second floor destroyed. That was where most of the children who were killed had been. The first clue as to those responsible for the bombing, the worst domestic terror attack ever on American soil, was an eight-foot piece of twisted metal. It landed nearly 600 feet away from the blast site. 
It was the axle to the Ryder rental truck that had carried the homemade bomb. The truck, a 1993 Ford, had a vehicle identification number stamped on that axle. It was thanks to the vehicle ID that FBI agents were able to track down and arrest a suspect. The U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno reported his capture to the nation. Timothy McVeigh, age 27, was arrested by local authorities. 25 years ago, Timothy McVeigh's heinous act killed 168 people, including 19 children. But here's something they didn't tell you on the news or teach you in school about what happened in Oklahoma City. A Ford truck may have delivered the fateful payload that terrible April morning in 1995, but Timothy McVeigh's act was really the end of a chain of events that began long before that day. The legacy of a toxic package of lies and hate that began 75 years earlier with another Ford, one whose name we associate with mass production, not mass murder. Welcome to Flashback, a new podcast from Ozzy that aims to bring the past back to life like never before. I'm Sean Braswell, and I'll be your visiting professor, taking you on a journey through history that will change how you look at the world today. Imagine Flashback as that history class you always wanted to take, but could never find. One where there are no textbooks, no exams, and no note-taking. Just the most compelling and surprising stories from the past, told by those who know the most about them. We are all living in the ripple effects of history. And so, in the first season of Flashback, we're going to connect the dots on some of the most incredible unintended consequences from the past. We'll learn how the invention of air conditioning changed the landscape of American politics, how Hitler's doctor changed the course of World War II, and much more. Today's lesson is a cautionary tale about hate, free speech, and giving a big platform to little men. Actually, I remember I was in the sixth grade. I was going to St. Eugene's Catholic School at the time. This is Latrice Sutton. She was 13 at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing. I remember being in class and the whole class standing up and looking out the window and seeing the puffs of smoke coming out from far away. We didn't know what it was at the time. But it shook our school building. It was pretty massive. That was not the only sign that something was amiss. My mom was supposed to eat lunch with me that day. And she didn't show up during the lunch period. And since she was a nursing assistant, I thought maybe she got called in to the hospital to help with all the people that were injured. Um, so I didn't think anything of it. Latrice ate lunch with her friends and went to recess as usual. When my aunt came to pick us up from school, um, she was crying. And I think at that point we kind of knew something was wrong. Sutton's mom, Teresa, had gone alone downtown to the Murrah Federal Building to get a social security card for Sutton's eight-month-old brother when McVeigh's homemade bomb exploded. She was 33. Four years before Oklahoma City, Timothy McVeigh made his first killing. He received the Army Commendation Medal for it. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. In January 1991, the U.S. went to war against Iraq in the first Persian Gulf War. One of the first American soldiers to enter the enemy nation was a 22-year-old infantryman from Buffalo, New York. In the Gulf, you saw combat? This is correspondent Ed Bradley in a 2000 interview that 60 Minutes did with McVeigh in his death row prison cell. 
And McVeigh was particularly open with his past. I did. You fired a weapon at the Iraqis? Yes. And killed soldiers? Yes. McVeigh was a gunner in a Bradley fighting vehicle, and he was a damn good shot. One day his crew spotted an enemy machine gun nest in the distance. It was more than a mile away, but poised a major threat to American troops. When one of the Iraqi gunners briefly came up from his position, McVeigh popped him right in the chest. The lethal shot, taken from more than 19 football fields away, would help force the surrender of 30 other Iraqis from that position and become the stuff of legend in the army. McVeigh had been using firearms since boyhood. Tim McVeigh was raised in a rural town outside of Buffalo, New York. This is Lou Michelle. He and his colleague at the Buffalo News, Dan Herbeck, spent 73 hours interviewing McVeigh after the bombing. And at a very young age, his grandpa, Ed, taught him how to shoot guns, rifles along the Erie Canal. Ed taught Tim about safety. You just don't shoot a gun anywhere because you could hurt somebody. The son of a factory worker, young Tim had a typical boyhood. He loved pro football, comic books, and battles between good and evil. He even made his own Star Wars lightsabers by attaching flashlights to cardboard tubes. He was known as Noodle McVeigh because he was very slender and uh, he was a target for bullies. Thus his hatred for bullies and he came to realize the American government was the ultimate bully. But he didn't come to that realization right away. And in May 1988, he joined the army. And one of the things he told Dan Herbeck and I was that the army had all the ammunition anyone could ever want. McVeigh loved guns, and he loved the army, at first. Other soldiers might have hated the early morning wake-ups, the strenuous training, the uniform inspections, and the discipline. McVeigh thrived. In late 1990, McVeigh learned he was on the fast track to being in the U.S. Special Forces, the elite of the elite. Then, just before his Special Forces tryout, McVeigh learned the Army had a different plan for him, Iraq. I went over there hyped up, just like everyone else. This is McVeigh again in that 60 Minutes interview. Not only is Saddam evil, all Iraqis are evil. Uh, what I experienced, though, was an entirely different ballgame. Dan Herbeck co-authored McVeigh's authorized biography, American Terrorist, with Lou Michelle. And he looked at the U.S. involvement in the Persian Gulf War as a giant, cruel bully picking on the people of Iraq. By the time he got out of the army, he literally hated the U.S. government, the government he had worked for. By the end of the year, McVeigh quit the army. And without the discipline, paycheck, and authorized violence that it afforded him, McVeigh, the bitter anti-government gun lover, was a loose cannon, just waiting for a spark to light him up. Henry Ford was a lot like Timothy McVeigh in some ways. He came from a simple working-class home near Lake Erie, and he grew to hate war and those he believed to be behind it. This is Victoria Wiesty, a legal historian and author of Henry Ford's War on Jews. Ford was a fierce, fierce pacifist and went on record publicly uh, criticizing the way that World War I was being conducted. The eccentric tycoon may have made his fortune from the automobile, but in 1915 he decided to take a boat to Europe in a bold effort to end the war through diplomacy. It proved to be a giant fiasco. 
Ford's reputation took a beating in the papers. The Chicago Tribune called him, quote, an ignorant idealist and an anarchist. And Ford didn't particularly care for being called ignorant or an anarchist, so he sued for libel. Which made matters even worse. Unable to stop the press from criticizing him, Ford tried something else. So in 1918, he purchased a newspaper in his own hometown, Dearborn, Michigan. It was about to go defunct. It was called the Dearborn Independent. And he even purchased a printing press. He brought it to the uh, Ford Motor Company factory, and he retooled it himself. Ford may not have called the national media fake news, but he was tired of the newspapers spreading what he considered lies. He wanted to have a means for reaching ordinary Americans directly and unfiltered. And it wasn't just to protect his own reputation or sell more cars. Ford was deeply concerned with where America was going as a nation. And he wanted to use the Dearborn Independent to reshape cultural practices, um, people's leisure time activities, how immigrants were assimilated into American culture, and what kind of politics should prevail. Ford used every means at his disposal to bolster his newspaper's readership. Free copies were sent to schools, libraries, and universities across the country. Ford dealers were even required to fill quotas for newspaper subscriptions, just like they did for their car sales. And because they never took subscriptions and they never sold ads, it was a complete loss leader for Ford. But he didn't care. Even if it did not make him money, Ford realized the power that having his own print media pedestal gave him. He had entered the newspaper business to counter the lies he believed were being spread about him. And it didn't take long for Henry Ford to start spreading his own. Do you have an interesting tale about unintended consequences from history or your own life? Please share it with us by emailing flashback at ozzy.com. That's flashback at ozy.com. Henry Ford learned to lean on his newspaper to help make sense of the world and spread his own opinions. Timothy McVeigh leaned on his favorite book. So McVeigh found out about the Turner Diaries through an ad in Soldier of Fortune magazine. J.M. Berger is the author of the book Extremism and an expert on white supremacist groups in America. And it was, you know, sort of nominally a magazine for mercenaries. So they published a lot of conspiracy theories. They were very supportive of the militia movements in the United States. McVeigh ordered the book advertised in Soldier of Fortune. The Turner Diaries is a dystopian novel by a white supremacist named William Luther Pierce. Pierce describes uh, the journey of a man named Earl Turner, who is involved in white supremacist organizations that were initially kind of covert terrorist organizations, and eventually it becomes an organized insurgency. Afraid that the liberal U.S. government wants to take guns away from honest citizens, Earl Turner and the right-wing insurgency fight back. In the course of this insurgency, uh, there are nuclear exchanges on U.S. soil, uh, millions of people die, and eventually the white supremacists uh, win over most of the country, and they institute something that is called the Day of the Rope, which is a day of 
revenge on minorities and on people, white people who are considered to be race traitors. The Turner Diaries is an epic racist fantasy, like porn for white nationalists. And Timothy McVeigh was hooked. So he was a, a huge fan of this book, a big evangelist for it. He would he would give it to everybody he knew. Uh, he gave it to his his army buddies. He passed it around to his friends and family. A lot of people were like, "Oh my God, what are, what are you doing? Get this away from me!" And after McVeigh left the army, the Turner Diaries provided a roadmap for what he had to do next. Timothy McVeigh struggled to get his bearings after leaving military life. He worked the graveyard shift at the Buffalo Zoo. He started gambling on football. He wrote long handwritten letters to local newspapers and Congress members that ranted about everything from affirmative action to gun control. And then something occurred that confirmed all of his worst fears about his own government. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us. A fanatical, scripture-quoting religious leader who moved to Waco to await the end of the world, instead may be to blame tonight for the deaths of several federal agents. In February 1993, federal agents raided a compound near Waco, Texas, that was home to a religious cult known as the Branch Davidians. The resulting shootout, caught on live television, resulted in the deaths of four agents and six cult members. Timothy McVeigh packed up his car and drove to Texas to join those watching the events unfold. He left after a couple of days and went to visit his army buddy Terry Nichols and his brother James on their Michigan farm. The Waco standoff continued. Lou Michelle again. McVeigh had been preparing actually to make a second trip to Waco and was out in front of the Nichols brothers farmhouse in Decker, Michigan, underneath the car working on the exhaust system. And Terry Nichols came to the door and started shouting, Tim, Tim, get in here. McVeigh ran inside and couldn't believe what he was seeing on the old color television in the living room. Armored federal tanks rammed the walls of the compound in Waco in an effort to drive out the cult members. Then flames began to engulf the building. I, I must tell you, this is, this is a horrible sight from two miles away. This is really a horrible sight. Nearly everyone inside the compound was killed, including 20 children. And that's what really drove McVeigh off the deep end. He stood in Terry Nichols' living room with tears in his eyes as he watched on live TV the burning of Waco. McVeigh resolved to do something about it. Dan Herbeck. On the day of that incident, he had decided he was going to take some drastic action of bombing a federal building of some kind. He scouted probably six or seven different cities and looked at federal office buildings as possible targets. Why did McVeigh pick Oklahoma City? Well, for one thing, it contains several of the U.S. government agencies like the FBI that he hated the most. But there was another reason. McVeigh told us that when he looked at the building in Oklahoma City, the federal office building, because of the way it was separated from other buildings, he believed that it would make a very striking visual image after it was bombed. It's disturbing to think that a terrorist was thinking in terms of photo ops, but that's one of the main reasons why he chose Oklahoma City. 
So why did McVeigh choose to bomb a federal office building to get back at the government? Well, that goes back to his favorite book, The Turner Diaries. J.M. Berger again. There's one key event in the book where uh, Earl Turner and his uh, band of colleagues who operate under the name The Order bomb the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And when they do this, they use a, a truck bomb that is of very similar construction to the one that McVeigh used. And it wasn't just the idea for building a bomb that McVeigh got from the book. The process of making this bomb is described in some detail in the book. Um, the book has a very much a how-to kind of quality. It's a, it's a guide to revolution. McVeigh and Terry Nichols started to buy thousands of pounds of ammonium nitrate to build their bomb, which McVeigh planned to deliver by truck to the Murrah Federal Building. Just like Earl Turner in the Turner Diaries, McVeigh considered himself a martyr, acting in the name of liberty. He hoped someday he would be regarded as a hero. Back in 1920, Henry Ford had his own favorite book. It was called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Ford historian Victoria Wiesti again. A Russian mystic named Sergei Nihilus published an edition in 1905 that starts to gain traction. People circulated it, they reprinted it, um, and Nihilus had thoughtfully supplied an introductory essay to his edition that connected a lot of dots for conspiratorially-minded anti-Semites. The Protocols is written in the second person. There's an omniscient narrator that speaks to an audience of Jewish elders, the elders of Zion, who are conspiring to take over the world. But he also speaks directly to the reader, who is drawn in as kind of a co-conspirator. And that was part of the, the great psychological brilliance of the document, is that it assumes that you're interested in this conspiracy that explains everything that's wrong with the world. Black or white, rich or poor, Protestant or Catholic, most Americans regarded Jews as alien and inferior. And the Protocols, a fictional fabricated story, played to that mindset. For the anti-Semitic mind of the early 20th century, and for someone like Ford who, who saw World War I as entirely the product of Jewish warmongering and profiteering, this was the explanatory document. This document laid it all out. Henry Ford fell hook, line, and sinker for the forgery. For Ford, this was confirmation of everything he believed. So everything that Ford despised about 1920s culture, uh, everything that undermined you know, wholesome values and you know, good religious church-going people on Sundays, uh, Ford believed was attributable to Jews, and the protocols proved it. But of course, Henry Ford was not just your average anti-Semitic reader. He was a publisher. So, beginning on May 22, 1920, and running for the better part of two years, the Dearborn Independent published a weekly essay that was entitled The International Jew, over more than 90 installments, Ford's newspaper published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, adapting the anti-Semitic propaganda for an American audience. People wonder why someone can get away with something like this. You know, why would anyone let Ford? And the answer is that when you acquire the kind of wealth and 
attain the status of, you know, American industrial royalty. You know, Ford was king. Ford was the most wealthy American ever. And nobody says no to that person. Nobody. It's estimated that Ford's newspaper spread the fallacious text to nearly 700,000 readers. When you go online today and you search for the international Jew, Henry Ford's name is all over it. And there is no erasing any of that. That's, that toothpaste is not going back into the tube. Um, you know, Ford is, for all time, associated with the most heinous piece of anti-Semitic propaganda uh, that's, that's ever been written. If only it had just been toothpaste that Ford let out of the tube. By April 1995, Timothy McVeigh had completed the homemade truck bomb he had designed with the help of the Turner Diaries. The night before the bombing, McVeigh drove to a hotel in Kansas, Lou Michelle again. He stopped in a gravel parking lot behind a hotel, parked his yellow rider truck, and told Dan and I that he slept like a baby that night with a 7,000 pound bomb in the cargo bay. McVeigh chose April 19, 1995 for his act because it was both the second anniversary of the raid in Waco and the 220th anniversary of the Battle of Lexington in Concord, the first battle of the American Revolution. He wakes up, gets out of the rider truck, checks the tires, gets back in, has his breakfast, a army meal called an MRE, Meals Ready to Eat, and it was cold spaghetti. McVeigh finished his breakfast and started driving toward Oklahoma, careful to stay under the speed limit. But if an observant highway patrol officer had noticed, you would have seen that the back of that truck was really sitting low, the cargo bay. But nobody noticed that. So he's driving on the highway, and at one point, there's a patrol car behind him for the longest time, and McVeigh is starting to sweat it out. Oh no, am I going to get caught? Finally, the cop exited the highway, and McVeigh breathed a sigh of relief. He soon arrived in Oklahoma City. And uh, he rolls up to the Murrah building, and there's a little cutout in the sidewalk. And he gets, calmly gets out of the truck, locks it, and starts walking away. McVeigh parked the rider truck right below the windows of the daycare center located on the building's second floor. He didn't look back. And about a minute later... McVeigh's homemade bomb killed 20 more people than the 148 Americans killed in combat during the first Gulf War, and injured hundreds more. McVeigh killed 19 children who were five and younger. The children's playground behind the building became a makeshift morgue as rescue workers carried the bodies from the rubble. President Bill Clinton addressed a shattered nation. Bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. But for McVeigh, the loss of human life was not an act of evil. It was an exclamation point on his message for the American government. McVeigh was expecting to be caught, maybe hoping for it. 
Inside his getaway car, he had placed an envelope packed with items he wanted law enforcement and the media to find and publicize. Among them, a quote from Earl Turner in the Turner Diaries. Turner says, quote, The real value of our attacks today lies in the psychological impact, not the immediate casualties. Today, we are still living with the psychological impact of McVeigh's own attack, and in more ways than you might imagine. We all need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying The Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark. I'm Greg. I'm Brendan. And this is a trailer for a new podcast called Get It to Dutch, A Screenwriter's Journey. It's about screenwriting. And a journey. The three of us play aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a hit Hollywood script to famous producer Dutch Huxley. Well, I would say one of us is aspiring and the other two are sort of struggling. Which one of us is aspiring? Well, they're going to have to listen to the podcast. Hmm. But I don't know, and I made the podcast. Well, I made the podcast, and I think you guys were along for the ride. Each week, we bring in a script, we read it, and then we give each other notes. And you'll also hear about our adventures navigating the Hollywood cesp- uh, system. The show features amazing guests like Tim Robinson, Lily Sullivan, Weird Al Yankovic, and Rob Hubel. And like any great blockbuster, it's filled with heartbreak, adventure, suspense, and just a little tasteful nudity. And some distasteful nudity. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, guys. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
1920, Henry Ford starts to promote the anti-Semitic ideas contained in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. 75 years later, in 1995, Timothy McVeigh commits a horrific crime based on another text, the Turner Diaries. But how do we get from one to the other? Well, if you look closely enough, Henry Ford's fingerprints are all over Oklahoma City. And that tale starts with the man some call the American Hitler. This is George Lincoln Rockwell here on behalf of the white Christian majority of Americans. George Lincoln Rockwell was tall, dark-haired, handsome, an Ivy League graduate, and a decorated Navy veteran. He was a gifted orator. He liked to carry a corncob pipe. Here he is in an interview with the radio and television talk show host Joe Pine, who was sort of the Howard Stern of his day. What he meant to say was, he's a Nazi. Mr. Rockwell, you are a Nazi, aren't you? I am. And there's nothing American about a Nazi, so why do you call yourself uh, the head of the American Nazi Party? That's a contradiction in terms. A Nazi is, above all things, a racist, a man who believes in the white race as the people who built white Western Christian civilization. There's nothing un-American about that. Rockwell may have fought the Germans in the Second World War, but he was a proud racist and anti-Semite. And in 1951, he read two books that lit a fire under him. One was Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. The other, the one that Henry Ford had helped spread all across America. Rockwell took the Jewish conspiracies found in the Protocols, mixed them with some generic white supremacy, and added in the big fear of his age, communists. Here he is telling Joe Pine about how he would treat any treasonous Americans with communist sympathies. What you'll be expected to do is sit on juries and hear the evidence against the traitors I think are running rife all over this country and convict them, and if they're convicted, we'll take care of them. Uh, how are you going to take care of these people? Well, I think there'll be so many, we're going to have to gas them. Rockwell had a gift for the dramatic, for theatrics. He was a racist showman. But here's the thing. Rockwell's bombastic style didn't really work. It earned attention, but not many converts. That all changed when Rockwell met an aspiring white nationalist writer named William Luther Pierce. J.M. Berger again. So William Pierce was a, uh, grew up as a kind of nerdy kid reading a lot of sci-fi pulp magazines, probably was exposed to kind of dystopian ideas at a very early age. And he was very good at math. He became a physicist working for the government. Pierce was not just any old physicist. He worked at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, the home of the Manhattan Project, which developed the bombs dropped on Japan during the Second World War. After the war ended, Pierce found he had a new enemy. He was offended by the civil rights movement. He was pro-segregation. And over time, his, his feelings about this moved in a more radical direction. He was exposed to the the writings and, and speeches of George Lincoln Rockwell. Pierce first saw Rockwell on television. He was giving a speech that was surrounded by protesters. Pierce was transfixed. And uh, he took up a correspondence with Rockwell and became active in the American Nazi Party. Soon Pierce was driving from his home in Connecticut down to the Washington, D.C. area on weekends to meet with Rockwell. Then tragedy struck. In August 1967, Rockwell was shot dead outside a laundromat in Arlington, Virginia, by one of his own followers. And Rockwell's death left a big vacuum in, in the white supremacist movement of the day. And Pierce was somebody who was able to sort of rise up and fill that vacuum first within the American Nazi Party and then later by forming his own group called the National Alliance. Pierce steered the American Nazi Party in a less ostentatious direction. Pierce was dismayed by the American Nazi Party's tendency to march around 
goose-stepping with swastika flags. He thought this was bad press for, for the white power movement. Then Pierce, the wannabe sci-fi novelist, took a shot at improving American Nazi propaganda. He began writing a serialized novel, which was called The Turner Diaries, and he would write one chapter in each installment of the newsletter, and it played out over about a year and a half, and it turned out to be extremely popular. This is Pierce himself in rare footage uncovered by PBS. If one asks, what, what was the purpose of The Turner Diaries? Uh, it was to uh, provide uh, a fictional medium for certain ideas that I think are very important. Fiction had always played a part in white supremacy movements, but Pierce took it to a new level. J.M. Berger. Pierce's approach was different in some important ways. The first is that it was, it was much more focused on action. He understood that you need to have a story to hook the reader along. And I think the second one was that he really was very light on ideology. So by taking that element out, by making this a very generic white power movement, he was able to reach a much larger audience in the white nationalist community. Pierce would lead the American Nazis until his death in 2002, producing thousands of pages of white nationalist publications over the course of decades and influencing countless followers. Followers like Timothy McVeigh. So this is how we get from the industrialist Henry Ford to the domestic terrorist Timothy McVeigh in a few short steps. In 1920, Ford takes a discredited anti-Semitic forgery called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and elevates it. He publishes its poisonous lies in both his newspaper and as a book. Victoria Wiesti. So with Ford's name on the book and Ford's endorsement of the theories of the protocols, American anti-Semitism sort of came out of the closet during the 20s. From then on, you know, it's been next to impossible to eradicate those assumptions from the entirety of American society. George Lincoln Rockwell was one man who had his eyes opened by the protocols that Henry Ford helped spread. He would found the American Nazi Party, and his disciple William Luther Pierce would strike white nationalist gold with his dystopian novel, The Turner Diaries. That book would give Timothy McVeigh both the motive and a means for executing the Oklahoma City bombing. And McVeigh followed Pierce's violent blueprint almost to the letter. It could be that our story stops there, in Oklahoma City, but it doesn't. The Turner Diaries, The Protocols, and Timothy McVeigh are all enjoying a deadly resurgence today. Latrice Sutton, whose mother Teresa was killed in Oklahoma City, can still remember life before the bombing. I think I was seven when we moved there. Um, my mom worked two jobs. She um, hardly ever got any sleep, but she was always there. Like um, She was my Girl Scout leader. She was at all my sports events that I can remember. Um, she never really missed any of those. Now a mother herself, Sutton can reflect even more on losing her own mom. I think that's the most tragic part of losing my mom is that now that I'm in adulthood and I see all my friends have their moms who are now grandparents, my mom would be an awesome grandmother, you know, and she didn't, I didn't get to see her in that role. And I think that's one of the hardest things for me now.
Sutton recently took her children to the Oklahoma City National Memorial, which stands where the Murrah Federal Building used to stand. The memorial includes a field with 168 empty chairs made from glass, bronze, and stone, bearing the names of each of the bombing's victims. When we went and took family photos at her chair one year, I um, kind of explained it to them what had happened. And the little ones still don't really, I don't think, fully understand, but my older girls are starting to understand it now. Sutton has come to better understand it herself over the years, too, including her feelings for the man who killed her mother, Timothy McVeigh. I don't have ill will towards him. I guess I have a firm belief that everything happens for a reason. You know, it's sad that I lost my mom at an early age, but it still shaped me for who I am. So I couldn't see myself hating someone for this crime, even though it was very tragic and very sad. The death toll notched by the white nationalist movement did not end with Timothy McVeigh, who was executed by lethal injection in 2001. Jay and Berger again. For a long time, McVeigh was not uh, very highly regarded in, in the annals of white nationalism, or at least not openly. Um, what we have seen in recent years is that there are people who, who see him now more as an inspiration. Um, so he's he's become a larger figure, uh, really, I think, in the last 10 years. And the movement has also expanded over that period. We're entering a much more heated cycle now. Um, you know, white supremacy is becoming much more active in the United States and internationally now. What we're seeing now is that pseudo-intellectual phase of, of white nationalism is kind of coming to a close, and we're, they're entering a, a much more violent phase. A shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue in October 2018 that killed 11 worshipers was the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in the United States. Police say the gunman told a SWAT officer that he wanted all Jews to die and that they were committing genocide against his people. And the hate helping to fuel such crimes has a familiar source. The protocols and the international Jew are the twin, you know, canonical texts of today's resurgent anti-Semitic movement worldwide. The, the copy of the protocols has been found in the possession or on the computers of the men who have shot up synagogues, both in the United States and also uh, in New Zealand. But what's even more scary is how much more easily such ideas can now spread. With the internet and social media, every outspoken racist is a potential Henry Ford. The example of Henry Ford is something that we're seeing play out today. Jay and Berger again. Specific kinds of bigotry, ideological racism, uh, ideologies in general, have to be communicated in order to spread. They are a social disease in many ways. Uh, someone has to tell you about it. They have to give you something to read. They have to post it you online. There has to be some kind of human interaction to, to spread these specific kinds of ideas. And now these ideas are being transmitted at speeds previously unthinkable. Henry Ford had to spend a lot of his fortune to publish this stuff. You know, it was an expensive venture for him. And even uh, at the point that William Pierce was writing the Turner Diaries, it was difficult to get this kind of message out. One reason he wrote the Turner Diaries is that it was hard to get people to subscribe to a neo-Nazi newsletter. Propagandists like Ford and Pierce had to pay printing costs and postage. It was not cheap. And what we have now is really a almost frictionless environment for this kind of propaganda. It is, you do not have to spend money to spread uh, a text. 
of any kind. You can just post it on the line and any number of online repositories for free. It took 75 years for Henry Ford's hate to result in something like Oklahoma City. Today's internet hate speech and propaganda can explode far more quickly into violent marches, synagogue bombings, school shootings, and more. What happens when those lies come knocking at your children's door like they did in Oklahoma City? It's a scary thought. Latrice Sutton again. I tell my kids all the time, before you walk in that schoolhouse, you need to say, Lord, protect me as I'm in here. Anything that is dangerous come my way, protect me. Because you never know. It's just crazy out there. So really, I don't think we can change it at this point. I think at this point, you should pray and just wait for the times to pass and the Lord comes back. That's my thought on it. Today's flashback lesson was really about the power of ideas, especially those that play on our prejudices and fears. And we learned that hate and harm can come from some unexpected directions. Whether it's a millionaire tycoon who has some fixed ideas about who is to blame for society's problems, or an army hero who comes to hate the very institution in which he once served. All we can do sometimes is to be vigilant and learn from the mistakes of the past. As Henry Ford himself once said, in one of his more enlightened moments, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. Flashback is written and hosted by me, Sean Braswell, senior writer and executive producer at Ozzy. It was produced by Robert Kulos, Tracy Moran, Iorio Digizua, and Shannon Williamson. Chris Hoff engineered our show. Special thanks to the crew at iHeartRadio Podcast Networks, especially Sophie Lichterman and Jack O'Brien. Make sure to subscribe to Flashback on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Flashback is the latest podcast from Ozzy, a modern media company producing original TV series, festivals, news, and podcasts for curious people. Ozzy's unique storytelling focuses on the new and the next, whether that's forward-looking news and features, bold new perspectives on TV, or brand new ways of looking at history. For today's lecture notes, a remarkable footnote from history. Lou Michelle again. Well, I would just like to mention that McVeigh also spoke to us many times about a book called Unintended Consequences, which he read around the same time as he read the Turner Diaries. That's right, a book called Unintended Consequences. Like the Turner Diaries, it's an anti-government fantasy. In this one, the hero is a hunter who becomes a terrorist sniper after witnessing his government crack down on American gun culture. He later told us that Unintended Consequences was actually the book he should have followed in his protests against the U.S. government. He, he told us that he, he wished that instead of a bomb, he would have become a sniper and picked off individual people in the government that he despised. McVeigh considered the Turner Diaries his Bible and Unintended Consequences his New Testament. It just happened by chance that he came across the Turner Diaries first. As McVeigh told Michelle and his colleague Dan Herbeck, quote, I think Unintended Consequences is a better book. It might have changed my whole plan of operation if I read that one first. And it might have changed a great deal more than that. deeper, head to ozzy.com slash flashback. That's ozy.com slash flashback. 
There you can find more of my lecture notes from today's episode, featuring extended interviews, links to further reading, and more information on Henry Ford and Timothy McVeigh, as well as links to other hidden stories from history, uncovered by me and other reporters at Aussie. We all need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love comedy movies and Hollywood satire, you're going to want to listen to a brand new podcast called Get It to Dutch. In Get It to Dutch, we play three aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a script to big-time Hollywood producer Dutch Huxley. Each week on the podcast, we perform a movie script right before your ears. It's like going to a movie with your eyes closed. And we have amazing guest stars, including Tim Robinson, Rob Hubel, Lily Sullivan, Jamie Moyer, and Weird Al Yankovic. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.